0: I want you to turn in your Bible to the sixth chapter of Revelation. And I'll be honest, it's providential that we're talking about mission, martyrdom, and the devastation that is left behind from natural disasters. Because the passage we're going to look at tonight in the sixth chapter of Revelation will describe a final judgment on the earth during the tribulation period, but it will be a time in which there will be martyrs, there will be disasters, and the Apostle John writes all about that in the second part of this sixth chapter. Now, I've given you a couple of handouts tonight, one of which is a a page with two or three charts on them. I want you to hold on to that. I'll come back to that in just a moment or two. But just sort of to set this up where we've been in our study, we've been in this sixth chapter for a couple of weeks. The previous chapter, the Apostle John sees the Lamb of God, whom we know as Jesus. He takes a scroll that's sealed with seven seals because he's the only one who's worthy to open it. And the seven-sealed scroll is really the title deed to the earth, And the contents of that scroll represent, it's the kingdom that has been given to Jesus, the kingdom that's going to be established at the end of the age. And it's interesting that in the ancient Roman world, often a will was executed only as there were seven witnesses who were present to be able to seal it. And their presence sealing it sort of made it an official document throughout the Roman world. So keep that in mind as you're reading this, the book of Revelation written somewhere around 95, 96 AD, and this seven-sealed scroll represents the messianic kingdom that's been promised all throughout the Old Testament that belongs to Jesus, the one that he's going to establish at the end of the age. Uh, This is written about in Psalm 2, David writes prophetically about the kingdom that belongs to the Lord Jesus, the Christ, the anointed one. Daniel chapter 7, the vision that Daniel receives where he sees the son of man who's approaching the ancient of days and to him is given an everlasting kingdom, one that will never be destroyed. And so that's what we have that we've come to possess and what we have to look forward to as the people of God. And so by receiving this scroll, Jesus is receiving his inheritance. And his inheritance is to be king over his rightful kingdom. And that is the ultimate goal of human history. Uh, Dwight Pentecost said this. He said, if the scroll is not opened, then there's no protection for God's children in the hours of their bitter trial. And no judgment upon a persecuting world. There would be no ultimate triumph for believers, no new heaven and earth, no future inheritance were this seven-sealed scroll not to be opened. And yet, as John records, when Jesus takes the, the scroll, the history of the world will ultimately reach its climax as Jesus, who's the only one who's worthy to open the seals, He begins opening those seals and there's a step-by-step process whereby he removes the control of the world from evil, the evil one, and forever rids from the world sin, death, and destruction. But the necessary steps really for preparing the world for his kingdom will involve a period of unparalleled judgments. And that's what... Revelation chapter 6 begins to describe with the breaking open of these seals, seven seals. And we considered the first four of those in the first part of chapter 6 last week with the writers, um, the four horsemen of the apocalypse as they've been referred to. And so this sixth chapter records the opening of the first six of these sealed judgments, which this is going to take place at some point future during the tribulation period. So John saw the first four sealed judgments and he describes them in symbolic language four riders upon various colored horses. And earlier in the chapter he says the first seal is opened by the Lamb, that's Jesus. And it involves this rider on a white horse who has a bow in his hand. And this describes ultimately a false sense of peace. This is is man, false messiahs, false Christ, false saviors, false hopes that people tend to um, um, put all of their trust into. Um, John sees this, and this is what's being described with this first rider. Because keep in mind, these seals that are being broken here, this is judgment. So this first rider of the white horse, this is not the same as the rider of the white horse in chapter 19, who's the Lord Jesus when he comes to establish his kingdom. This is false salvation here. This is more than likely associated with the Antichrist and his kingdom and the peace that he's going to promise, but it's going to be a very short-lived peace because the second rider, when the second seal is opened, involves a rider on a red horse that takes peace from the earth through war and conflict and violence. The third seal is opened, it involves a rider on a black horse holding a pair of scales which uh, symbolizes economic collapse, deprivation. And then as the fourth seal is opened, uh, the rider on a pale horse is described as being death with hell following behind him. And so what you have with the first four sealed judgments, you basically have described the delusion, the destruction, the deprivation, and the death that will be characteristic of a final period of human history during the tribulation period. Now keep in mind, there's a sense in which all of these kinds of things are, are, are true of human history. You think about the last 100 years and how the last 100 years have perhaps been the most bloody in human history, two world wars. World War I was described as being the war to end all wars, but the irony of it was the way things kind of were left off with World War I kind of set things up for World War II. And then the irony of World War II, even though the Allies won the war, the geopolitical situation of the Middle East and, you know, the thing that happened with uh, Nazi Germany, the terrible Holocaust where six million Jews were murdered out of World War II and the defeat of Hitler. You had to cry among world leaders to establish a home state for the people of, for the Jewish people. And so out of the events that transpired in World War II, you had the creation of the modern nation state of Israel and so folks, our generation has witnessed some remarkable events. There've been some remarkable events happened in the last 100 years in human history. So the breaking open of these seals though, I still believe this is pointing forward to a future tribulation period, but keep in mind the beginning of birth pains that Jesus talks about in Matthew chapter 24 involved these kinds of things. False saviors who come along and promise the world to humanity, if they'll just buy into what they're selling, war and conflict and chaos and division, economic collapse, division between the haves and the have-nots, and death and pestilence and all of that. And so that really brings us then to verse number 9 with the breaking open of the fifth seal. So let me just read here, beginning with verse 9, when he, that's the Lamb, John says, When he opens the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness that they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? And then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brethren should be complete who were to be killed as they themselves had been. And then when he opened the sixth seal, I looked and behold, there was a great earthquake and the sun became black as sackcloth. The full moon became like blood. The stars of the sky fell to the earth as a fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that's being rolled up and every mountain and island was removed from its place. And the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who's seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand So John is describing the wrath of the lamb. Notice that phrase that's used there in verse 16. Now, does that not strike you as being odd? Wrath, if if John were to say the wrath of a lion, well, I can understand that. I see an angry lion running with teeth and foaming jaws and a loud roar, that invokes a sense of terror. But a lamb, (laughs) a lamb? Well, you gotta keep in mind who this lamb is because this lamb is also the lion. And so this is none other than Jesus. And what's being described here is what the prophets of the Old Testament foretold, a coming day of the Lord, which is associated with end time judgment, wrath, as God is going to pour out wrath upon an unbelieving Christ-rejecting world. And in so doing, he's going to establish the kingdom of his own son. So all of history is moving toward that climactic moment, the kingdom of God on earth. And that's what the book of Revelation ultimately really is all about. Jesus is returning to inherit his kingdom. And so if you don't understand that, then you can't understand history you know apart from an understanding that history is moving somewhere and that history ultimately finds its solution and fulfillment and goal in the kingdom of jesus aside from that history really doesn't make sense does it if if jesus were not the sovereign lord of history and history were not moving toward that future kingdom in in which jesus christ is going to rule and the reign then then history would be nothing but a monotonous dead end journey really a road to nowhere. Have you any of you ever been to the road to nowhere? I know not far from where Anita grew up. You go over to Bryson City and you go just down to town, you get into the National Park, the Smoky Mountain National Park. There's a road called the road to nowhere. And the reason it's called the road to nowhere is because it goes nowhere. They intended to make a road, I believe it was supposed to go over to an island in order to access a cemetery. Is that right, Anita? She could tell you about it later. But... The point is, you travel that road for a few miles through the, through the mountains, you come through a tunnel, and when you come out of the tunnel, the road just dead ends. Now, folks, I'm going to tell you something. History, apart from an understanding of Jesus and the kingdom of Jesus, would be like the road to nowhere. We're just moving forward, but we don't really know where we're going or why we're here. But know the gospel... And the book of Revelation helps us understand that history is moving toward a climactic moment, and that's the kingdom of Jesus. So, so before we look at this, these fifth and sixth seal judgments, I do want to point out a couple of things that I think will be helpful, especially as we continue through our study of Revelation in the coming weeks uh, I need to point out that there are some interludes and some patterns in the book that you've got to pay close attention to, and that'll really help you understand the overall message. Think of it as sort of like a, a long play, where if you've been to a play, you'll know that you'll have a scene where there's some action that happens, then the curtain kind of falls, the scenery changes, there's an intermission, and then once the curtain rises, the action on the stage begins once more. Well, Revelation is a lot like that. There are interludes within the book. And then, just like a play, the book goes back and forth, shifting scenes where there are things happening on earth, and then there are things that are happening in heaven. And so John is describing different things, things that he's seen in the heavenly throne room, and then things that he sees happening as a result of God's decrees, things happening on earth. So again, look at those charts that I gave you. Uh, Pull those out. Many of you had asked from last week, I made mention of the fact that the seal judgments, the seven seals, sort of correspond to what Jesus reveals about the future tribulation period in Matthew 24. And so you can kind of see the sequence of what Jesus describes in Matthew 24, the Olivet Discourse. The other chapters being uh, Mark 13, Luke 21, you can see how what Jesus describes being characteristic of the end of the age, it's some of the same things that we see associated with these, these opening of these seals. For example, false saviors. Jesus said, don't let anybody deceive you because there are going to be many who come in my name saying, I am he, I'm the Christ, I'm the hope of humanity. Now, they may not come out and say, I am Jesus Christ, but they claim to be saviors for humanity. And our world is certainly not, I mean, there are plenty of these would-be saviors who say, believe me, uh, follow me, vote for me. False saviors, people that we tend to put our hopes into, and we've got to be careful not to do that. And then you'll see how that sort of corresponds with the first seal judgment there in chapter six, the rider of the white horse. Then Jesus said wars and rumors of wars will be characteristic of the end of the age. Well, that corresponds with the second seal, the rider of the red horse. So I won't go all the way down the list, but you can read that and you could kind of see how Revelation six and seven really correspond to what Jesus said we can anticipate as far as the future is concerned. Now, look on the side that has two charts, the first one being the sequence of events from chapter 6 all the way through, um, really, chapter 20. All right, so notice how this works. And you can, you can look this in your, at your, in your Bible at some point later on, but you've got the main action that's happening with the breaking of these seals, right and and so you've got the first six seals described here as they're being opened in chapter 6. Now you're going to notice that there's going to be an interlude or an intermission between the 6th and 7th seal and that's the content of chapter 7. The main action resumes in chapters 8 and 9 with the breaking open of the 7th seal. And the seventh seal is associated with seven trumpet judgments. So as the seventh seal is opened by the Lamb, then there are seven angels who sound seven trumpets. And those seven trumpets involve specific judgments that will be true within the second half of the tribulation period. Well, there's an intermission or an interlude between the sixth and seventh trumpet. Just like there is between the sixth and seventh seal, you'll see the same thing between the sixth and seventh trumpet. And much of the content of chapters 10 through 15 is descriptive. It's information that kind of fills in the details. For example, chapter 12, where the apostle John is sort of clued in on Satan's long war against God. And Michael and his angels do battle with the devil and his angels. And there's the story of how the dragon or Satan has long persecuted the woman that's described in that chapter. And the woman is descriptive or symbolic of Israel. The male child that the woman gave birth to, well, this is the Messiah who's caught up to God and his throne This is what Jesus accomplished in his first advent through his life and his death and his resurrection and ascension. So that intermission is really just some descriptive information that we need to understand, and it really helps us process why a a, a fallen world is in such enmity with God, hostility toward God and his people. That then feeds into the 13th chapter where you have the beast that's described and the false prophet that's described. And it's the dragon, Satan, who gives this beast, or Antichrist, his power. So John is giving us those, uh, those details there in those chapters 10 through 15. Now, the main action returns in the 16th chapter with seven bold judgments, So the seven seals, the seventh seal gives way to the seven trumpet judgments, the seventh trumpet gives way to the seven bowl judgments toward the final, I mean the the, the end of the tribulation period as just judgment is poured out upon the world in rapid succession leading up to the second coming of Jesus. But, Again, there's an intermission in chapters 17, 18, and 19 describing the fall of Babylon. Babylon is symbolic of the city of man. Man and the culture of man and the society of man as it's in opposition to the people of God, the city of God. By the way, the story of the Bible really centers around two cities, Babylon and Jerusalem. Where's our citizenship as the people of God? The heavenly Jerusalem. And yet we know that we are also temporal citizens living like exiles in Babylon. And so there's a lot of symbolism that goes back into the Old Testament. That's why we better not get too comfortable in this world because, listen, Revelation reminds us ultimately what the kingdoms of this world are going to come to. Don't put down stakes too deep. It's a good place for you to say amen. Amen. And then the main action returns in chapters 19 and 20 with the second coming of Jesus and then the millennial kingdom of Jesus that's described in chapter 20, the thousand-year reign of Christ upon the earth. All right, now, that's the sequence of events. I know you can't see that, uh, but that's why you've got the chart there on the table. The scenes also change. Back and forth between heaven and earth as you read through Revelation. So you've got the scenes there in the left-hand column that happen in heaven. I've given that to you there. And then there are scenes that happen on earth, the right-hand column. and, And you can see that and read that later on. Okay? So keep in mind, you've got pretty much a chronological backbone. The seals, trumpets, And bold judgments provide us with a chronological backbone throughout the whole book. And I say it's a backbone because there are times when, when, again, there's an intermission. There's an interlude and the action stops and there's some information that's given that we need to understand. It may even go way back into eternity past or history past. You understand that? Now, maybe it's clear as mud, but... So that really brings us then to this fifth and sixth seal, these judgments, right? what's, What's going on here in these verses here at the end of chapter six? Well, with the fifth seal, notice that this involves what I'm calling the vindication of God's elect people, the vindication of God's elect people, This fifth seal depicts the martyrdom of believers on earth during the last days. In the last days, there will be people who come to faith in Jesus and they'll suffer persecution. Daniel chapter 7 says that Antichrist will make war against the saints of God and will even prevail over the saints of God. And this fifth seal pictures these martyrs in heaven asking the Lord for vindication. So notice just a few things about about these martyrs. Notice the reason that they suffer. John says in verse nine, I saw under the altar. Now this is not to be confused with the altar in the temple of Jerusalem. But no, this is the altar for which the altar of the temple in Jerusalem was merely a symbol or a picture. This is the heavenly altar. You understand that when Moses was on the mountain in the Old Testament, when he was receiving a pattern from God for the tabernacle, which would then become the pattern for the temple later in Jerusalem, you understood that God showed him something in heaven. And he was to pattern everything there in the tabernacle after what God shows him in heaven. He sees the heavenly temple. And that heavenly temple involved a heavenly altar. This is what John is seeing here in this sixth chapter of Revelation. And so, this altar in the Old Testament, you go back to the Old Testament, the symbol of the altar, whenever a priest would present a sacrifice, the blood of that sacrificial animal was always poured out at the base of that altar in the tabernacle and later the temple. And the blood is representative of life. So, here in this passage, you've got the souls of these martyrs under the altar. And the language there and the symbolism there indicates that their lives were given sacrificially to the glory of God. Here are those who poured out their souls unto death for the glory of God in obedience to God. It's the very thing that Paul had in mind when he tells the Philippian church in Philippians chapter 2. He says, if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, he says, I'm glad to do it. What's he talking about? He's talking about martyrdom, suffering for the sake of Christ being named among the Philippian church. Everywhere Paul went and preached the gospel, guess what? It cost him, didn't it? We better get out of this way of thinking that the gospel shouldn't put too many demands on my life. John is talking about believers who have given up everything for the sake of the gospel, even their own lives. They loved not their lives unto the death. They were were far more willing inconvenience for the sake of the gospel. That's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about sacrifice, even death. And so that word martyr, even the word martyr comes from a Greek word, martis. And a form of that word is used here, translated as witness or testimony, depending on what translation you use. It's the word used in verse 9. So these saints were martyred, slain by the enemy, simply because of their witness to the truth. They were faithful to the testimony of Jesus. And so we know that in the last days, those who were part of the system under the influence of Satan. An antichrist will persecute those who identify with the word of God. Now it should be understood that in the tribulation period there will be believers alive. Now passages like this and passages elsewhere lead some folks to interpret the rapture as happening later in the tribulation period. Either the midpoint or toward the end, I tend to hold to the view that it happens prior to the beginning of the tribulation period. And one of these Wednesday nights I'll tell you why I hold that view Okay, so before you start sweating and thinking, okay, is he talking about me? Is this going to be what I have to face? Are we in the tribulation now? You know, I believe the rapture happens before the tribulation begins. But there will be people who come to faith during that chaotic seven-year period on earth. Again, remember that it's the time of Jacob's trouble. It's Daniel's 70th week. Many within Israel are going to turn to their Messiah. There'll be a lot of believers and many martyrs who will die for their faith and especially among Israel. But in this way, these martyrs that are being described here, this ought to serve as an encouragement to those of us who follow in their steps because the scripture says in 2 Timothy chapter 3, all who desire to live godly lives in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. So persecution and allegiance to the cause of Jesus, this goes with the territory. And where there has been no persecution in a Christian's life, that's the exception rather than the norm when you look at the grand scheme of things throughout history. And even now, I mean, you know, we're not so much experiencing volatile persecution, the kind that Mark was describing a little bit ago in Burma, But you know, even now, we're beginning to experience some real cultural hostility and animosity toward Judeo-Christian values. The temperature's on the rise for the church in the West. It's getting a little bit more uncomfortable to be bold in your faith, to be clear where you stand And there's pressure now being exerted upon the church, okay, am I going to align myself with the Babylonian system, the Babylonian view of marriage and sexuality, the Babylonian view of gender, (laughs) or am I going to go with God here and plant my flag firmly with the city of God on this issue, humbly yet boldly? but the temperature's on the rise. But even now, places around the world, I think about believers who were put to death for their faith. You can research this, you can go to Voice of the Martyrs, their website, you can go to Open Doors USA, their website. But Christian persecution around the world is one of the biggest human rights issues of the day. And yet the Western media is silent. A woman in India watches as her sister's dragged off by Hindu nationalists. She doesn't know if her sister's dead or alive. A man in North Korean prison camp is beaten unconscious. A woman in Nigeria runs for her life. She's escaped from Boko Haram who kidnapped her. A group of children are laughing and talking as they come down to their church's sanctuary after eating together, but instantly many of them are killed by a bomb blast. December 2nd, 2014, I remember this story. The Christian Post carried a news story that revealed how four Iraqi children were beheaded by the Islamic State simply because they refused to betray Jesus. They died in his name when ISIS militants gave them one last chance to say the Islamic words of conversion. And this story recounted how all four were under the age of 15. I think of my little girl. I think of my little boy. And they were killed when they refused to say that they would follow the prophet Muhammad and they told the ISIS fighters that they would always love and follow Jesus. You remember the horrific images as those Egyptian Coptic Christians were taken out on the beach and Video circulated through social media and around the world as ISIS terrorists with black hoods on took razor sharp knives and literally slit the throat, cut the heads off of those Egyptian Coptic Christians right there on the beach. When persecution, Christian persecution, takes its many forms, oftentimes it's just, and this is open doors their definition of persecution. It's generally defined as any hostility experienced as a result of identification with Jesus Christ. Any hostility that we experience as a result of openly identifying with Jesus Christ, this is persecution. And it's something that Jesus said his followers ought to expect in the world. And yet we don't cry about it, we don't bemoan it, we don't... What does James say about it? James chapter 1, consider it all joy, my brethren, when you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces patience in your life. So it's something that we ought to wear as a badge of honor, that we're privileged to suffer for the name of Jesus. We don't whine about it, we don't complain about it, no, we we rejoice that we're willing to suffer and we're worthy to be able to suffer insult and even injury but here in the west we're so concerned about safeism i know the gospel bids me come and die for the cause of jesus but no nah, i'm just I'm more concerned about my personal health and safety at this point in my life. Tertullian, church father, said that the blood of the martyr is the seed of the church. The church always advances in an openly hostile world when it's willing to lay down its life for the cause of Jesus and suffer. As the church suffers, so the kingdom expands. (laughs) And as the church retreats, So God says, all right, let me just go over here and really go to work among this unreached people group. And here's a group of believers in an unreached part of the world and they don't have social media and they don't have all this luxury and they don't have all that. But you know what? They love me. And they're willing to lay down their life for my sake. And then watch a revival begin to explode among such a people. Even though it comes at the expense of many who are willing to lay down their lives. Folks, that's how God, and that's how the church has always grown at some point, someone had to be willing to lay down their life, lay down their stuff, and to make a sacrifice. And we're privileged re- recipients of a building that's been built, but you know what? Somebody had to give and make the sacrifice and put down some money to build the building, didn't they? And everybody wants to talk about what's wrong with the church these days, but it seems to me that they've forgotten. The cause of Jesus is advanced among the nations by those who are willing to lay down their all for his sake. Now, I got to move on. I didn't intend to stay that long on that point, but the request that these martyrs make, notice they're asking God, how long, O Lord, before you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Now, notice this is not a prayer for personal vengeance on their part, but This is a way by which they're just acknowledging that a holy and righteous God, it demands that he deal with sin accordingly. And God is the ultimate judge who's going to deal with man's sin and man's inhumanity to his fellow man. So this is the justice of God, the vindication of his holiness that they're praying for, which, by the way, we echo this same petition every time we make this statement in our prayer lives, thy kingdom come. What do you think you're asking God for when you pray that prayer? What is Jesus asking us to pray? Thy kingdom come. Lord, would you usher in righteousness? That's what these martyrs are crying out for here. But then the reassurance that they're given They're given a white robe, they're told to rest a little while longer until the number of their fellow servants and brethren should be made complete, who would be killed just as they themselves had been, which means God is making it clear to these martyrs that their death was a divine appointment, not an accident. (laughs) God was not up in heaven going, oops, I didn't mean for that to happen to y'all. No, it's by divine appointment. And it's it's, it's not that judgment is being executed on these martyrs, but notice that it's these martyrs. The martyrs are the the judgment on an unbelieving world. It's, it's, It's like the blood of Abel crying out to God from the ground when Cain rose up and murdered him. What did God say? When Cain tries to run, tries to hide, tries to make excuses, God says, let me tell you something. The blood of your brother Abel is crying out to me from the ground. Every ounce of blood of every human baby that's been aborted in the West cries out to a holy God and will be vindicated. Every ounce, every precious drop. Every precious drop of some innocent who's been put to death for their faith. God knows about it. Psalm 116, precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. Precious. I've read that verse and that's been my text at funerals before and I've often wondered, that's a strange verse. How can the death of anybody be precious in the sight of God? It's when God knows what's happening in the life of that saint as that saint is a witness whose testimony, whose death is a testimony, whose life is a testimony to a world that desperately needs God and needs to see something different that they don't see in the rest of the world. And death merely becomes the taxi The ferryman that escorts the believer into the presence of his Lord or her Lord. Precious in the sight of God is the death of his saints. (laughs) We don't fear death, do we, church? No guilt in life, no fear in death. This is the power of Christ in me because from life's first cry to my final breath, Jesus commands my destiny. So the vindication of God's elect people. Now... The second point here with regard to the sixth seal as it's broken, verse number 12. Let me just give this to you quickly. John says that when the Lamb opens the sixth seal, behold, there was a great earthquake and the sun became black, the moon became like blood. He describes the stars of the sky falling to the earth like fruit falling from a tree. And so the devastation then of God's earth in the last days, the earth will be shaking, the sky will be falling, and the climate will be revolting. (laughs) Which climate change has always squared with my eschatology. (laughs) People say, you believe that global warming stuff? Well, you know what Peter said, one day the elements are going to melt with fervent heat but it won't be by simply natural means. It won't be my can of hairspray that does it. I'll tell you that right now. My grandmother, she was a beautician for years. She had a beautician shop called Sandy's Hairport. She used to talk about it, all the politicians talking about you know, global warming, global warming. She said, they want to say that it's my can of hairspray in this shop that's causing all this global warming. She said, but they don't want to take responsibility for all those rockets they send up from Cape Canaveral. You know that's got to be poking holes somewhere up there. But it's my, my can of hairspray that's causing the global warming. No, what's being described here is nature that's being affected in the last days as a result of God's judgment. And it's going to produce worldwide panic. And this is in keeping with what the Old Testament prophets spoke of about the day of the Lord. Joel chapter 2, where God says, I'll show wonders in the heavens and on earth, blood and fire and columns of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness, the moon to blood. Before that great and awesome day of the Lord comes. Isaiah chapter 13, behold, the day of the Lord comes, cruel with wrath and anger to make the land a desolation and destroy sinners from it. The stars of the heavens and their constellations will not give their light. The sun will be dark as it's rising. The moon will not shed its light. Jesus said the same thing. When he said what to anticipate and expect just before his return, Matthew 24, immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall from heaven, the powers of the heavens will be shaken. He's talking about cosmic disturbances, cataclysms on the earth. Luke 21, there'll be signs in the sun, the moon, the stars, listen to this and on earth distress of nations in perplexity because of the roaring of the sea and the waves. The hydrological cycle, the currents, the climate, nature in chaos and convulsion as a result. Listen, the natural result and the consequences of man's sin. One thing that we've determined in our study through Revelation is that when man gets out of step with God, nature gets out of step with man. In the beginning, God created man, placed him in a perfect garden environment, told him to exercise dominion over all that God had made. But because of man's sin, that dominion was forfeited. And now all of nature itself is in rebellion in revolt against man. So call it climate change, you call it whatever you want to. But what's being described here is supernatural. When God is calling the chickens home to roost in man's world. And then one final thing, the trepidation of God's enemies. As all of these cataclysms begin happening when the sixth seal is opened by the Lamb of God, what will will be the, the, the mentality on earth? Well, the kings of earth, the great ones, the generals, the rich... The powerful, everyone slave and free, they hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains, fall on us, hide us from the face of him who's seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. But the great day of their wrath has come and who can stand? So notice who's represented in that number. You've got the great ones on earth, the people who thought they were above any need for God in their life who thought that their money could save them, who thought that their might and their clout and their power and their social status could save them. None of that will be a a sufficient savior come judgment day. They run into the caves. They try to escape judgment, but there is no... By the way, that's what man in his lostness does naturally. He runs from God. He runs from divine accountability. It's what our first parents did. Adam and Eve ran from God when God came calling, and man's been running from God ever since. And his salvation won't be found trying to run from God. It'll only be found as he runs to God in the person of his son. And ultimately, they recognize that it's the lamb, the one whom they've long rejected. He's the one to whom they're accountable. And my, what a message. So let me close this out by just simply saying, what are we to make of all of this? You know, one thing to be sure is that those who are in Jesus Christ, we've been saved from the coming wrath. We've been saved from it. That's a promise over and over again. We've been saved from judgment. We've been saved from wrath as those who are in Jesus. So whether the rapture happens before the tribulation or whether things happen, one thing I can say with certainty, that we have been saved from the coming wrath. And just as Noah and his family were well-preserved within the ark whenever the rain of God's judgment began to fall, listen, the same waters that inundated the world in Noah's day were the same waters that lifted the ark to safety. And so it will also be in the last days for God's people, those who were safe within the ark of Christ. And some application for you, I think, would be this. As a follower of Jesus, you ought to expect hardship hardship for the sake of the gospel. Don't let it take you by surprise, but expect it. And you read things in the news like tornadoes and the destruction of towns and the loss of life, as tragic as that is and as heartbreaking as that is, it ought to remind us that life as it is now is very brief. Mayfield, Kentucky was no, they weren't worse sinners than people in High Point, North Carolina. And the same thing can happen to my house and your house and our family. We go into the doctor for a routine checkup and that routine checkup reveals some type of cancerous mass. Are we to assume that that took God by surprise? Or can we just simply say, you know what, life as it is now is very brief, but praise God, I know the King. And I'm a citizen of his kingdom. And I need to persevere because I know that one day God will judge evil and he'll vindicate his own. Amen. Let's stand for prayer tonight. <clears throat> Lord, in Jesus' name, as we bow, we're thankful. Lord, for your word, and Lord, for the precious truth that you're sovereign over nations and you're sovereign over storms. And Lord, now the door to the ark of your grace is wide open. And the invitation of the Spirit and the bride is this come, whosoever will, come to Jesus. But Lord, that door of opportunity will one day be closed. And the scripture says it's appointed unto man once to die and after this, the judgment. And so, Lord, until then, we trust you, we cling to you, we pray that this would move us forward with a sense of urgency as we live obedient lives. We look to give of our time and our energy and our resources for the sake of Jesus among the nations to minister to need where we have time and opportunity to be the hands and feet of Jesus. In his precious name we pray. And all God's people said together, Amen and amen.